You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, March 2nd, 2011, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. And it was on this day in 1830 that limelight as a form of lighting was presented before scientists at the Tower of London, London, England, in a trial with two other lamp designs. According to this one website, it was invented by a gentleman named Thomas Drummond in 1816, and limelight was used, limelight used jets of oxygen to assist heating lime to incandescence. I found another website that disputes the fact Ooh. that Drummond uh, was the inventor. A man named Goldsworthy Gurney. That's a that's a fake name. name. <laughs> no, it says so. <laughs> Golds, Goldsworthy. Goldsworthy. Yeah. I think that name is going to make a big comeback in the. In Wasn't this, he stuck on decade. the island with Gilligan? <laughs> <laughs> I, why? Why do we care about this? Limelight is cool. First of all, that's the source of the saying in the limelight. In the was, limelight, yeah, it was used in theaters. And yep. do you know what technology replaced it? For lighthouses first. Um, lemon um, light? <laughs> <laughs> Close. Lemon lime light. Uh, well, an- antimatter. Arc-, arc lighting. Arc lighting, yep, exactly. Lighthouses were the most demanding application for light. You needed a really bright light. Yeah. And this is, you're talking about March 5th, right? March 5. Now, what, what happened in 1964 on March 5th? No. Um, uh, someone had a birthday. My wife was born. Ah, oh. happy God. birthday, Jocelyn. Happy birthday. Hey, well, Boys. I can beat that. He's getting, he's getting laid tonight. <laughs> Today is Courtney, my fiance's birthday right now. What are the odds? Really? Right now. And our I, friend Larry. What a dink. Yep. <laughs> well, let's, let's go on to some news items. Rebecca, you're going to tell us about predicting earthquakes in New Zealand. Yeah, I think we, we talked about this particular quack in the past. His name is Ken Ring. And he thinks that he can predict earthquakes. And when you know it, the recent Christchurch quake, which was big and very damaging and killed a lot of people, was apparently predicted by, by Ken Ring. If you don't recall us talking about him previously, just let it be known that there is absolutely no science involved in his predictions, no geologists uh, support what he says. No volcanologists support what he says. No scientist anywhere supports anything this man says. How about Scientologists? He might have a few Scientologists on his side. Yeah, I think they I haven't even turned I haven't away asked from around. Him. <laughs> <laughs> Too crazy for Scientologists. So that's oh, man. that's, that's crazy. Uh, he, he thinks that the moon actually can cause earthquakes. Because the moon can have a pull over the tides, he believes that when the moon is close to the earth, it can create these, uh, these super tides, which can actually affect the tectonic plates. And so he uses this, uh, despite the fact that, again, there's no scientific evidence that this is in any way true. He uses this as his way of predicting earthquakes. He said that people should expect an earthquake. He gave a range yep. that ended around February 18th, I think, and the quake itself was on the 22nd of February. He 
considers this a hit because that's pretty much what he always does. He names a bunch of dates and then says, oh, it'll be a week or so around these dates, which just so happens to cover the entire month usually. Right. You guess in the middle. It's a very old technique. You guess right. a number around the middle of the month. And then if you're close to it, you know, you have the best chance of being close the closer to the middle of the month. Here. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, this is even easier. Predicting earthquakes around uh, Christchurch is even easier than predicting earthquakes in California because, as I'm sure everyone knows, there was a big quake in Christchurch back in uh, October, I believe it was, or November. And it's been experiencing thousands of aftershocks ever since then. The quake that just happened is actually an aftershock, even though it was quite large. It was slightly smaller than the previous quake and is considered an aftershock. It was also, quote unquote, predicted by actual scientists studying earthquakes, um, actual seismologists who predicted that there should be about two aftershocks uh, on like during that week. And sure enough, there was one that was very large, unfortunately, and placed in such a way that it did a tremendous amount of damage. Rebecca, I'm uh, even surprised to hear that a seismologist could make a prediction that was that accurate. From my understanding, they could only, you know, give year ranges with when they think an earthquake would happen. Well, an earthquake, yes, but not aftershocks. Aftershocks are sort of predictable in that, um, you know, they know what kind of earthquake this was and they can look at past earthquakes. They can have a better idea, I think, of, of what to expect. And especially when you have an aftershock every day, you can, you can say like, yeah, okay, we're going to, predict that this is going to go on for X number of months, we can expect an aftershock pretty much every day. Um, so, you know, it, it is, they give a, they give a range and it's, you know, zero to two aftershocks that will occur in this time period, maybe. Um, they don't use it as a way to uh, scare people. They don't fear monger. They make it clear that this is inexact. Um, it's just the best guesstimate that they can give. Um, Ken Ring, on the other hand, is the king of fear-mongering. He trumpets his quote-unquote hits. He gets a huge following on Twitter and Facebook. People who get really freaked out because he'll say, you know, look out, there's going to be a big one happening in the next couple of weeks. And when the next couple of weeks go by and there isn't a big earthquake, then everybody forgets about it. Um, it's just, you know, it's, it's something that we see over and over and over again with a lot of different pseudoscientific subjects. You remember the hits and you forget the misses. Luckily, uh, New Zealand has a journalist who wasn't interested in taking any of Ken Ring's crap. A lot of you sent in this link to journalist John Campbell, who had Ken Ring on his show ostensibly for an interview, but really I think it was just a chance for John Campbell to tell Ken Ring what an idiot he is. It was satisfying in a way to watch. Eventually, the, I think the next day, Campbell had to apologize because he didn't actually let Ken Ring say anything. <laughs> like <laughs> oh, Ken Ring would start to say something stupid and John Campbell would jump in. So he started, Campbell started by um, pointing out that Ken Ring originally said that the aftershocks from the 
previous earthquake from from the main earthquake back in November, he said that the aftershocks will pretty much end by the end of November. Obviously, that miss was completely forgotten. There have been over a thousand aftershocks since then. Campbell also pointed out that for the month of February, Ken Ring predicted earthquakes on February 3rd, 6th, 18th, 19th, 21st, and 25th, plus or minus three days on either side of each of those. Campbell points out, you know, that's that's actually the entire month right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the 10th, he, the 20th, Ken the 30th, Ring, plus or minus Ken five. Ring also says um, that you should look out for earthquakes a week either side of a full moon and a week either side of a new moon, oh. which is... What's that? Duh! Yeah, 28 month. days. <laughs> right. That's, that's, that's four weeks. Um, he points out that Ken Ring is, is fear mongering, that he makes people scared. Ken Ring responded saying that doctors and meteorologists can make people scared. When it was pointed out to him that those people have qualifications, Ken yeah. Ring said, um, well, what about the captain of the All Blacks rugby team? What, what qualifications does he have? <laughs> and, and, you know, Actually, he has plenty. I looked it up. He's been playing rugby a long time. So <laughs> actually, his qualifications shouldn't really be in question. Um, unfortunately, he is still, you know, still going strong. And he has predicted the next major earthquake uh, March 20th. So right. Give or take a month. Yeah, plus yeah. or minus, yeah, <laughs> minus 15 days. It, you, you can be sure that if there's an earthquake anywhere within a month of that date, he'll call that one right. a, a hit. And, and, and if there isn't. We'll just forget about it. Yeah, and anywhere in that hemisphere, I'm sure, that will count. Right. right. Guys, in, an interesting aside uh, with the, the relationship to tides. I mean, obviously, I, I don't see it, there's really no connection. But did you know that not only do tides exist um, on bodies of water, but also the land and the atmosphere produce tides? The, sure. Um, I mean, the, the earth could actually, the lithosphere, as it's called, can actually rise up about a foot. What is that, Bob? What's the lithosphere? That's the surface of the Earth. That's the oh. surface of the Earth. But you got to a foot over the entire yeah. hemisphere of the Earth is nothing. So you're saying it's so negligible that, you right. know, that there are no apparent, there are no visible effects from living here on the surface. That's correct. It's it's obviously detectable, but not by you know mere humans. Well, Jay, I know you love stories about future technology that's never going to happen. Well, they are interesting, aren't they? They are. But so tell us what you think about this one about growing fuel. Well, let me uh, give you the background, and then I'll tell you what my gut tells me. You mean the bacteria in your gut? (laughs) So a company in Cambridge, Massachusetts called Juul Unlimited has genetically engineered an organism named cyanobacterium that they claim secretes a completed product identical to diesel fuel or ethanol. That's a huge claim. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's amazingly significant. If, If they're correct in what they're saying and if what they're claiming is actually scalable, then just right there, without me even continuing, without any more description, what what they're saying here could literally change the world. So let me give you a little background on this. So wherever their genetically engineered bacterium encounters sunlight, water, and carbon dioxide, they claim that this bacteria can produce the renewable fuel on demand at unprecedented rates and can do it in facilities large or small at cost comparable to the cheapest fossil fuels. They're, they're claiming that after production, this is when you're literally putting the last drop into the barrel, that it should be about $30 a barrel to produce. Uh, Which to is produce. cheap. 
the fuel, yes, very cheap. Very, Compared to yeah. gas prices today, what are we at? hundred dollars a barrel today. One hundred two dollars we were at today for oil. Right. So, U.S. dollars. U.S. dollars. They also claim this month uh, they released a peer-reviewed paper, and they said they claim that the paper backs their claims. Um, there are people, of course, that are speaking out about what they're what they're basically claiming here. So there's a scientist named Philip Piancos from the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, and he said Jules' technology is exciting, but he says it's unproven. So that doesn't really speak well for the paper that they put out. And their claims of efficiency are undercut by difficulties they could have just collecting the fuel their organism is producing. One of the big things that people are saying that they're worried about is that in in small production, you know something very good could be happening, but when you try to scale it up, you know imagine going from a petri dish to you know maybe a fifty acre or hundred acre facility farm yeah yeah, it becomes a, a much different thing when you when you get the size that big how How can you get all of this bacteria to be dispensing what they secrete into you know one one basin that could be easily harvested you know just there's there's a lot of technical and engineering issues here that need to be worked out but you know guys this is a pretty big pretty big claim and it seems like they have a pretty pretty significant science because they do have a bacterium that's producing diesel that's that's crazy jay i don't why, why are you focusing on fuel you said ethanol right D- diesel i mean that's, and that's, ethanol. That's, that's booze dude i mean <laughs> the title of your discussion should be not growing fuel it should be growing booze that's huge. Fuel and booze. I mean, what else did they make? Twinkies, too? <laughs> yeah, I mean, pretty incredible. Booze is significantly more expensive than oh, yeah. than fuel right now. So, yeah, we need to put Damn, all man. of our top scientists on this. Well, the <laughs> yes. thing is, it Juul claims, for instance, that their bacteria can produce 15,000 gallons of diesel fuel per acre annually. That's over four times more than the most efficient algae process for making fuel. And they, and you know when they say it can, you know that that basically averages out to thirty dollars a barrel. You know if they can go with this, this is yeah. I mean the innovation here is I mean biofuels are kind of problematic uh, in terms of just the energy calculation. The biggest problem with standard biofuels is you grow something algae, grass, corn, whatever, uh, and then you you take the uh, the plant itself. And you use that as a food for something or to extract cellulose or, or some, some uh, energy content molecule, which you then have to process into ethanol, for example. Mm-hmm. And it, that process is difficult and energy intensive and uh, is where a lot of the inefficiency comes from. So if well, you they- can bypass that, which is what this technology does, where you're not making something that you make into ethanol, you're making the ethanol directly, and the and the bacteria doesn't get used up. It could just right. It can continue just to keep, re- keep working. Yeah, it, yeah, keep going. So the uh, the concept's great. Too too great. The problem is that they they have something that's working at a petri dish level, you know, yeah. some some laboratory level, and they haven't proven that they can scale it up. And there are there are technological reasons why this may be difficult. And as you alluded to, Jay, that uh, extracting the fuel requires producing a, a large amount of water with a small amount of fuel, and then you have to get that fuel out of that large amount of water. Uh, and they, and they're not really sure how they're going to do that on a large scale yet. So again, the, this is where I think a lot of these technologies run into trouble. Where we hear about these great batteries or solar cells or now 
or now you know, we've been hearing a stream of these uh, biofuel stories is can it scale up? If it can't, it's worthless. So one of the things that Jewel is saying is that, as an example, they would build their, their fuel-producing factory right near um, another factory that has a byproduct or an exhaust of carbon dioxide, and they would use that carbon dioxide to feed their bacteria. Yeah. That would actually be making a much smaller carbon footprint over the haul of the, of the fuel production. So they actually could be removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere by producing the fuel. Yeah, well, they would do that. I mean, any biofuel works that way. That's the whole, the whole re- notion that biofuels are carbon neutral is because you fix carbon from the atmosphere and then you put the same amount of carbon back when you burn it. So it's, a, it's neutral. Yeah. You're, not, you're not releasing stored or sequestered carbon. You know, building it near a power plant that's producing carbon dioxide doesn't change the equation. It just means there's going to be a higher concentration of carbon dioxide to feed their plants. Yeah. But it doesn't make it more carbon neutral. That, that, that's kind of relevant to that. The, 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 this guy who's uh, running the corporation, Sim, said one thing in this, in this interview, which I found very annoying, uh, towards people who were skeptical of his mm-hmm. claim, saying yeah. that maybe this is a little bit premature hype. He said, there's always skeptics oh, yeah. for breakthrough technologies, and they can ride home on their horses and use their abacus to calculate their checkbook balance. Oh, uh, God. Uh, attack. Yeah, that's – come yeah. on. That's, Give me a break. You could say that about any reasonable skepticism towards any premature hype that the you know the, that corporations are trying to sell to their investors. Basically, yep. Uh, I mean that that to me that that rubbed me the wrong way. That, yeah. How many times were the skeptics right? Yeah. Overwhelmingly more <laughs> than right. they, they weren't. So. Yeah, there's always skeptics with breakthrough technologies, and there's always skeptics for all the thousands of cranks that are there, you know, as well alongside. But the skeptics are the ones that are telling you how to sort the, uh, the right. re- what's real from what's fake. Right. So how do you tell the difference? Science. All right. Well, let's. So we'll keep an eye on this. We'll see. You know, again, all this, a lot of this technology we've talked about over the last few years. Uh, it takes a lot. First of all, it takes years for these things to actually do come to market. Uh, when they do, and most of them don't. All right. Well, Bob, tell us about uh, neutron stars and a new type of nuclear matter. This is pretty cool. I enjoyed doing research for this one. Recently, two teams of scientists announced that they had direct evidence that the core of neutron stars contain a bizarre type of matter. Um, now, neutron stars, uh, we've, we've gone over these a lot. Basically, they're the corpses of massive stars. They're about as big as a city, yet they weigh about as much as two of our suns put together. And when the core of a, of a massive star explodes into supernova, uh, the protons and electrons kind of like overcome their degeneracy pressure and they squeeze together and they form neutrons. So basically you've got this, you know, this city-sized ball of mostly neutrons. Now we've learned, we've learned a lot about these stellar remnants over the decades, but the, co- the cores of these objects have always been a real big mystery. Uh, in fact, astrophysicist Danny Page, of the National uh, Autonomous University in in, uh, in Mexico, and he's one of the lead authors. Um, he said that the interior of neutron stars is one of the best kept secrets in, of the universe, and he continued by saying that it looks like we broke one of them. So, what what two separate teams of researchers discovered then was solid evidence that the core of a neutron star, uh, the neutron star's the name of it was a Cassiopeia, which is about eleven thousand light years uh, from Earth, fairly close, and the youngest known neutron star in the Milky Way. It probably contains a neutron superfluid in its core. 
just a, a quick quote from their paper. They said that this is the first direct evidence that superfluidity and superconductivity occur at supranuclear densities within nu- neutron stars. Have you guys heard of superfluids? Never. No. No. Uh, they are. Doesn't Superman drink superfluids? Oh yes. my God! That's the best you could do. Yeah. Oh, really? See, Steve. You see, I thought of that, and I and I refused to say it. So, um, wow. <laughs> Doesn't Lois Lane drink superfluids? Oh, <laughs> boom. That's oh, nice. yeah. Okay. Very That's nice. Safe. That's better. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll just cut to that. Super- yeah, right. <laughs> superfluids are very cool, so to speak. Uh, they're an example... They're an example of one of those fascinating and rare instances in which the bizarre counterintuitive behavior that we see, you know, in the atomic quantum realm kind of pokes its head out into the macroscopic world so that we can actually see it with our own eyes. Superfluids are a state of matter. Um, I guess it'd be better to say that it's a phase of matter that behaves like a fluid but without viscosity. And with infinite thermal conductivity. So ba- viscosity based basically, you know, a viscous fluid is very thick, like molasses, very, very viscous, whereas oil has low viscosity, uh, which is why it spreads out so, so, uh, so thin. So it therefore flows with no friction, which means that when you look at its behavior for the first time, you're kind of genetically programmed to say, what the hell is that? It's really bizarre. Go to YouTube, look up a superfluid, and it huh. does, it does crazy stuff. If you cool liquid helium, to the superfluid state and put it in a container, it will literally climb the walls of the container and get out. Creepy. Just like the thing. <laughs> right. Why would uh, that happen, Bob? Because <laughs> it's a super, because it's no superfluid. <laughs> no viscosity, Jay. There's no, no viscosity. So, um, and oh, here's another one. If you swish it around, you know, like, um, if you put it in a closed container and kind of swish it around and walk away and come back in a million years, it'll still be swishing around. Now, it, superfluids are so awesome that three Nobel Prizes have been won by scientists messing around with it. So it's really, really fascinating stuff. So how does this super cold helium, though, in a lab relate to this super dense neutrons in a collapsed star? It right? doesn't. Wow, Bob. Great question. It has to do with Cooper pairs. Now, now Steve, you've heard of Cooper pairs? Oh, yeah. Now, Cooper pairs, this was actually, I, I didn't know about, know this. Cooper pairs are actually, they're related to superconductivity, which, which, which I knew. I thought they were only right. related to superconductivity. And that for, for, for superconduction to happen, you need to have Cooper pairs form. If something superconducts, you're basically having electrons pair up. Uh, they, they get into this special low energy bound state, uh, with each other that, that lets, that actually is what causes super, superconductivity. Now the same is true for this lab created supercooled helium atoms in a superfluid. You have these Cooper pairs forming together within the superfluid and that's actually causing it's, it's causing this, uh, this superfluid state to happen. And the same principle applies to the neutrons. So it, it turns out then that neutrons can form into these Cooper pairs, creating a superfluid in this, in this crazy dense core of a neutron, of a neutron star. Um, so you might ask then, um, I mean, how do you even notice this? How do you know, how do you look at a neutron star and say, hey, there must be Cooper pairs inside there causing a, you know, creating a superfluid state? Basically, it has to do with how rapidly the temperature of the neutron star changes. Conventional theory about neutron stars say that cooling should be a very slow process. Um, what happens is the neutron, the neutrons within the neutron star decay back into electrons and protons plus our little nearly massless neutrino friends that then just fly away. But when they, when they looked at the data for this star though, they, they discovered that it was cooling at this incredible rate. It went from 2.12 million 
Kelvin to 2.04 million Kelvin or or 4% change in 10 years. That's a change of 85,000 degrees. Now that might not sound like much, but it's far beyond what, what the cooling should be. So what they think is happening is this. The neutrons are joining with other neutrons to create these Cooper pairs, or occasionally a neutron might join with some of these rogue protons that might be in there, and they form Cooper pairs which, of course, form the basis of a superfluid. But with each Cooper pair creation, though, these neutrons are created and they fly away at near the speed of light, carrying away some of the energy that cools the neutron star at a really rapid pace. So that, that's what they think is happening. And that's what this is what they consider to be direct evidence that the superfluid exists. Evan, you're going to give us a quick update on this, uh, the cross-eyed psychic celebrity possum. That's right. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Steve, Heidi, Steve, your name is Heidi. Please show a little respect. I gotta give Evan something to add. <laughs> Heidi. <laughs> yes. Thank you. <laughs> Heidi. Heidi the possum, Germany's cross-eyed celebrity <laughs> possum, that is, came up one pick short of perfectly predicting the top awards at the Oscars this year. Made three predictions, best actor, best actress, and top movie. Wait, it only, year. Heidi only made three predictions? That's all I could find. Did you find any others? Wait, I thought she predicted all of them, but she got one wrong. That's a critical point. I, mean, I when I first saw, it, I thought, yeah. oh, we guessed all of the Oscar winners except except Best Picture, which is odd. No. But it guessed all of the ones that, it guessed that would, and only missed one. That would be impressive. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. I mean, you know, the yeah. the Oscars were depressingly predictable this year, but but even still, that's that's statistically pretty good. But uh, if it was just if, if she only made three picks and got Best. Best actor, everyone could p- predict that, right? You, if you yeah, portray gonna... somebody with a with a uh, an impediment, you win Best Oscar. That's yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And actually, that was for for both of them, Natalie Portman and Colin Firth. And Natalie Portman, both playing yeah. screwed up people. That's right. right. And a cross eyed possum would be the first one to tell you that. Mm. <laughs> <So> However, <laughs> the cross eyed possum chose the movie One Hundred Twenty Seven Hours to win Best Picture. And that award instead went to the King's Speech. Yes. Which so, did not deserve it. Yeah, I and mean, really, were, Heidi's in the right here. I mean, she was making a bold statement about the fact that, that, that the King's Speech was just overhyped. Yeah, absolutely overhyped. Yeah. Christopher Hitchens tore it to shreds in a very nice way. Yeah, did he? Good. Yeah. Oh, I didn't read Not that. as a movie, but as a piece of history, just as the, the interpretation of... The historical, the historical, yeah, period was was, uh, was not very accurate. Well, that's too bad. The the, the director has made other uh, movies and, and series and right. stuff involving history, so I, I would have thought that that would have uh, would have been a little more true to the true to the facts. I was pulling for a True Grit myself. Yeah, I enjoyed that I movie. True I grit. didn't see it. That was that good, huh? It was, it was awesome. So good. Was, that little girl should have won. She oh, should yeah. yeah, that was the biggest disappointment is that she didn't win for Best yeah. Supporting Actress. Now, some actress who dropped the F-bomb on TV. Yeah, right. <laughs> I was pulling for Toy Story 3. That wasn't even yes, nominated. Yes, right? That yeah, movie was... made more money than any other movie last year. I mean, that's, that's not, not the only... That's not how we should judge. I know. I was just going mean, to say I that. Loved, that's not, but the, it did it for a reason. It, it got that much money for a reason. You know what I, it was really brilliant. After we saw True Grit, my wife and I watched the original True Grit with John Wayne. John Wayne. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God, was that horrible. <laughs> uh, it was I don't terrible. Think it's horrible but no, it was terrible. It the was new one's definitely horrible. better. Look, the Coen Brothers write screenplays... Or co-write screenplays like no one else. Their dialogue yeah. is tremendous. It was great. It's, it's, it's it was awesome. wonderful. 
Yeah, you got to put the original like, True Grit in the time frame when it was made and the oh, styles that they were but in. It, I mean, there's something kind of cheesy about it, like a kung fu movie, you know? Yeah, you know, I mean, just watching John Wayne be John Wayne it was is is always kind of fun. But just as a film, you compare the the Coen Brother version to the John Wayne version. It's just it was it, the Coen Brothers version completely spoiled the original because it, it did make it seem completely cheesy. The music was so horrible in the original, it's like it actually, the score detracted from your enjoyment of the movie. It was <laughs> oh, incongruous. Oh, yeah. I love when I, that happens. Th- wasn't the yeah. score like some, what 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 kind of, uh, wasn't it like a disco-y kind of sound to it? Like some sort of weird. It was like lighthearted, you know, like walking around kind of music. You know what I mean? <laughs> that was the word I was thinking. Like exactly. the Sanford and Son theme or something. Now, would you guys, back to possums for a moment. Yes. Would you like to know some interesting facts about possums? Sure. Is that is that the plural of, of possum? Possums? Right? Possums? Uh, Potsai? Possum? Possum? The name I think possum, the plural of possum, possum is possum. Possums, S okay, on the end. go ahead. Hit me. Never mind. Poss- possums are the only marsupial in North America. Part That's of the right. marsupial family. That's right, Che. But the rest <laughs> of the family lives elsewhere, not in North America. Once a female possum mates, she gives birth a mere 13 days later to a litter of a dozen baby possums. Wow. Wonder- now, that's an evolutionary advantage if I ever heard one. Yeah. But then they've got to carry them around in the pouch. For three months, that's yeah. right. The uh, they're born. They uh, you know they uh, the little things are about the size of peanuts or something, and they work their way to the mother's teats, and then they hang on there for three months. Evan, please regale us with last week's "Who's That Noisy." I will. Who's that noisy? So it's the time in the show when we play an audio clip that relates to science or skepticism in some way, and we ask the listeners to identify that noise. Here is last week's "Who's That Noisy." <laughs> Okay, what do you guys think? Maxwell Smart's shoe phone? Yes, that's right. Is it really? Yes, it is. <laughs> that's exactly what it is. <laughs> well done. And I just loving it. pulled that out of my nether regions. <laughs> that was the yeah. second best Who's That Noisy you've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> and kudos to Elian Sign for figuring it out and being being the only one to figure it out besides Steve. <laughs> And uh, Eliensine actually uh, had posed some guesses prior, but realized that they were wrong and went back, listened to it more carefully. So congratulations. Very well done. Well done. Very well done. Evan, what do you got for this week? All right. Here we go. This week's Who's That Noisy? One thinks about maximum entropy, that the black hole represents maximum entropy. That's not strictly true, and it always used to worry me a bit that if the temperature of the background goes down to below that of the black hole... All right, that's it. Stephen Hawking! Oh, wait, can't. That's all you get. Can't be. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen Hawking a long time ago. No. Well, it's interesting that you should use that quote, Evan. Do you, are, you, are you saying that you think you know who that might be? No, but it's interesting <laughs> that you should use that quote because we're going to do some follow-up on a question from last week that has to do with black holes and entropy. 
Mm-hmm. Last week we talked about the question, why isn't information – or if information is, is not, cannot be destroyed, then uh, would our consciousness survive forever? Because the information that makes up our minds cannot be destroyed and therefore persists in the universe in some form. And essentially we said that, well, information can be destroyed and you know, the information that is in your brain will, will be lost when your brain rots away. Uh, now what we said was technically true – Although uh, it was certainly an incomplete answer because it is easily confused with other concepts that have to do with entropy and black holes and information. Uh, A lot of people pointed out that according to quantum mechanics and, and thermodynamics that information cannot be destroyed. Uh, however, this is a different kind of information. It's not the kind of information we're talking about when, when we're talking about the, the information comprised of the pattern of neurons in your brain. Physicists use the term information in the, in the context of quantum mechanics and thermodynamics to refer to things like the wave function. And it is true that that kind of information cannot be destroyed in that it cannot exit the universe. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the same as saying that energy cannot be destroyed. Um, however, just like you can have energy in a form that can do work, and then once it gets used up, you haven't destroyed the energy, but it could no longer do work. Similar fashion, you can have this kind of information um, and then it can get scrambled in such a way that it is inaccessible. The, effective, effectively lost forever. In that it universe. is lost. And that was the question. Can information be lost? And that's why I answered it the way I could. The information is lost. It is no longer usable, just like the energy is no longer usable to do work. But, but technically, it still exists in some quantum form. It's just scrambled in such a way that you cannot infer the previous state from the new scrambled information. Does that make sense? So, yeah, and sure. interestingly, the same quantum mechanics that tells us that we can't destroy this kind of, you know, information um, also is the same, you know, you know set of theories which uh, tells us that you cannot always go back and infer information. Now, for example, in a Newtonian completely deterministic universe, you could theoretically take any point in time in the universe and you can then backtrack all of the momentums and movements and everything to a previous state. Yeah, you just hit the rewind button. Yeah, you, you, there's, yeah, it would be practically very difficult but not theoretically impossible. However, with quantum mechanics, because, um, because of uh, the Heisenberg yeah. uncertainty principle and the fact that you know, wave functions are probabilistic, you actually cannot arbitrarily reverse... You know, time, as it were. Right, you would need and, it, you would, and go to a previous state. Yeah, you would need infinite precision, which is impossible by definition. Yeah, which is impossible because of Heisenberg. So, you you can, that's why, like, once the, your brain is worm food, you cannot go back and infer the information necessary to reconstruct your brain. Or, like as now, Bob said, you burn that piece of paper. That, that you cannot go back and infer the pre- previous state of the paper with the information written on it, even though the wave function is still in the universe somewhere in some scrambled form. One quick new email. This one comes from Isaac Wabey from GB. Great Britain. Is there any other GB that that could be? It's kind of um, uh, uh, Great Barrier. Great Barrier. Gambia. Gambia. All right. Uh, Isaac says, 
With you guys being forward thinkers and having imaginative and open minds, I would like to know what your opinions are on what the world, e.g. human society and basically or not everything in general, will look be like in 10,000 years. Well, we have destroyed ourselves, split into different subspecies, be totally dependent on technology. I ask this because so often you hear about future advances, problems in the next 20 to 30 years, running out of oil, etc. I would like to know ultimately what you guys think some of our society's long-term problems, achievements might be. Love your show, by the way. Thanks for reading. Teenager with way too much time on my hands. <laughs> Semicolon smiley face. Okay. So thanks for the question, Isaac. I think uh, you know everyone is going to give, uh, I'm sure, their own interesting answer. My, uh, I think, accurate but maybe not so interesting answer is that I think the only thing we could say for sure about what human society will be like in 10,000 years is that we have absolutely no effing idea. That well, it well, it is beyond our ability to even speculate. But we can speculate things like uh, a gl- the next glacial age or the, the next the glacial cycles and these sorts of things. And those do impact, obviously, societies and humans. Yeah, it's and, possible that we may, may be in another glacial period. Come on. Yeah, by that boring. Time. Let's get to the good stuff. Excuse me. We have to start with the, with the basics <laughs> from the, to, the, to, to, the, to the robot zombies and those sorts of things. Robot zombies. I well, do think know. broad, very, very broad brushstrokes. I think we could say things like we will probably co- have colonized most of our solar system by then. Wow. I, 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 it's harder to say <laughs> if, if we will colonize. <laughs> be, what was that? That's, Bob? that's Bob what, saying. What exactly was that? That's left? Bob saying, Steve, you're thinking so small. <laughs> no, I think that's, we could pretty much say that we will have colonized the solar system. I don't think that uh, we probably will have spread ourselves to other star systems, but it's hard to say. To what extent? Because, you know, Jeez, the speed of light being what it is, it's probably never going to be easy or trivial to get to uh, other stars. Go ahead, Bob. Dyson Sphere, Bob, Bob. Bob. Say it. Dyson Sphere. Um, yeah, I'll throw in my few cents here. Um, yeah, it's kind of silly. Going out 10,000 years, obviously, it's really kind of ridiculous. Um, but, it, it's, it, but it probably tells us more about you know, the predictor than, than the predicted. Uh, so it, it can be, it's interesting and it's fun, I think. Um, I mean, when I just look 10,000 years in the future, I mean, I just see all these, all these different possibilities, all these different options. Um, extinction, obviously, for many different reasons. Uh, the average lifespan of a species is, what, two or three million years. We could, we could just be extinct. For many different reasons, could be a meteor, could be a gray goo nanotech disaster, it could be a gamma ray burst, which is one of my favorite ways for the planet to die. Oh, um, zombie don't apoc- even start talking. About I know that. It's, zombie it's apocalypse. Creepy. But um, but also, I think it'll I think it'll come from an unsanitary phone. <laughs> <laughs> but 10,000 years, we could also, I could see like a few thousand people living like a, an agrarian life, you know, after narrowly surviving some natural or man-made disaster. Ooh, post-apocalyptic, cool. I think natural, I think natural selection uh, will stop intentionally and will be replaced with unnatural selection. Um, we're, I think we'll, we'll use our cultural technological evolution to digitize and evolve our ways, evolve ourselves in ways that we obviously can't even imagine now. I mean, we're not going to be these energy beings or anything, or anything like that. I think that would be kind of silly because a lot of people think, you know, they think of what the Organians from uh, Star Trek. 
uh, the, you wow. turn to pure energy and stuff, which is silly oh, because Bob, that's a million the, years beyond. Yeah, those. right. But and, and, and Bob, only people forty-five and older have a clue what that. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's all right. That's all right. I'm doing it just for them. But the thing is, if we're pure energy, it's kind of silly because you'd have to, energy doesn't stand still. You'd pretty much have to be moving at the speed of light everywhere. I think we would want to be embodied in some way, but I think at some point we will necessarily be compl- entirely virtual for for no other reason than the fact that you know when you can uh, when you can augment your mind and you could think say a million times faster then the the, the entire world and the universe changes everything gets becomes too slow and I, I think we would be physically limiting ourselves nobody would want to travel physically there's not even a lot of science fiction that deals with 10,000 years in the future because it's just so far. no although that was 10,000 years is about you know the the time frame of the dune series but they they solved the, uh, the you know the impossible to extrapolate technology problem by doing things like banning computers, you know. So they put, really put a crimp on human technology. That was interesting. There was one one series I read that um, which was very very far in the future, where essentially we had created a supercomputer out of the out of just the interstellar space, just out of the universe. So imagine just really? an omnipresent supercomputer. That is sort of built into the fabric of the universe, and Sounds like human beings, yes, yeah, human, human beings Got could it. essentially you know communicate with it, and, yes. and with any other being that communicates with it at will, and you can also through subspace you know, basically upload yourself to it at will, and then download yourself into whatever kind of physical form you wanted. But that's the kind of things you're talking about ten thousand years in the future. That things that are. Total, you know, game changers many, many times over for humanity. Rebecca, what do you think? Baby mammoths with jetpacks. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Wait, 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 wait. Oh, oh man. I, I, didn't, I didn't see that coming. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Let's go on with our interview. Joining me now is Eric Jan Wagenmakers, uh, and you told me before we started that you like to be called EJ. So, EJ, welcome to the Skeptics Guide. Thank you very much. And EJ is an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Amsterdam. And reading your homepage, it says here that you have an interest in Bayesian inference, which is an interest that I share as well. But let me ask you, do, do you ever use that as a pickup line for girls? <laughs> I don't think that would work very well, no. No? You, well, you're not, you're not hitting on the right kind of women then, I guess. <laughs> yeah, probably. So we're going to talk about uh, Daryl Bem's Psy research, where he claims he has evidence of peop- the ability of people to see into the future. But we f- before we get to that, I do just for a little bit of background, tell me a little bit about your research and specifically about the Bayesian inference, because I suspect that has something to do with your opinions of Bem's research. Yeah, most definitely. I'm actually interested in a lot of different things, but my uh, statistical interests are f- focused on Bayesian inference. And I'm actually writing a, a course book together with uh, Michael Lee from the University of California at Irvine. And in this course book, we try to uh, make Bayesian inference more accessible to psychologists and cognitive scientists. Because it's if you don't know the details, even though Bayesian inference is, is sensible and rational, uh, for people who don't know the details, it can be uh, somewhat off-putting sometimes. Can you give uh, for our listeners give a give a quick overview? How would you describe Bayesian inference to the layperson? 
Right. So the the principle of Bayesian inference is incredibly simple. So Bayesian inference uh, has been described as a rational thought. So what would a, 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 a rational person, how would this person decide? What it really is, it's a, it's a, a rational, coherent way of updating your beliefs. So you start with some prior beliefs, data come in, and they change your beliefs, and you end up with posterior beliefs. Mm-hmm. And that's really all there is to it. And so one thing it allows you to do, which is uh, really nice in the context of research on stuff like ESP, is that it allows you to specify two hypotheses. You have the null hypothesis that says there is no such thing as ESP or psi, and then you have to specify your alternative hypothesis. And after you have specified this hypothesis, the data come in and you can see to what extent the data support either the psi or ESP hypothesis or the there's no such thing hypothesis. Right, and the Bayesian approach starts with some kind of a notion of prior probability, right? As you say, you think, mm-hmm. based upon everything we currently know, how likely is each hypothesis, and then how does the new information change those likelihoods? Exactly. So this is interesting because, um, and I was very fascinated to read your editorial on, on Daryl Bem's research because, you know, I'm in medicine, and I'm part of a group of uh, physicians, you know, colleagues who are trying to promote the notion of Bayesian analysis or Bayesian inference in medicine mm-hmm. and favor it, in fact, over the more traditional p-value approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that something also that, that you're addressing? Oh, yeah, very much. Uh, actually, that, that is one of, the, one of the first reasons why I got into the Bayesian inference thing in the first place. I noted that there were several s- things wrong with p-values, uh, serious things. And so then, quite naturally, uh, you look for an alternative, and, uh, and the Bayesian framework is, an, uh, is a really excellent alternative. Mm-hmm. So one, one problematical aspect of the p-value, for instance which is central in the classical way of doing statistics, is that it ignores the alternative hypothesis. It only looks at how plausible are the data under the null hypothesis. Right. But the alternative hypothesis doesn't even come into play at all. And that's weird because evidence is a relative concept and you really want to sort of contrast one hypothesis against the other hypothesis. And that whole notion is absent from the p-value. Yes, and I think you pointed out in your paper that a lot of people confuse the interpretation of the p-value. The, the p-value is really just the probability of the data given the hypothesis, but people often interpret it as the probability of the hypothesis given the data, but, but that is not the case. Could you expound on right, that a little bit? Right, right. Well, actually, that's, uh, it's funny that you, uh, you ask this because I teach a uh, course in uh, statistics, a second-year course, and our students actually get a lot of statistics. And, of course, all their courses focus on the p-value, right? Because that's the central value that has to be below 0.05 and then you have success. So they all know this. And I start my class and I hold up a 20-euro bill and I say, whoever can tell me what a p-value is gets 20 euros. And so, you know, they try and uh, maybe it's the probability of uh, uh, replicating the effect uh, or – Maybe it's uh, the probability of the null hypothesis or the uh, – and they get inc- incredibly confused. And it's because the definition is just really 
uh, difficult. It's the, mm-hmm. the probability of obtaining a test statistic that is at least as extreme as the one that you've observed, given that the null hypothesis is true. Right. And, you know, my argument is that there's really not too many researchers that are interested in this very thing. Mm-hmm. What researchers want to know is how likely is my null hypothesis and how likely is my alternative hypothesis? Those are very straightforward questions, but you can't address those questions in the classical paradigm. You can address those questions in the Bayesian paradigm. Yep, yeah, I agree. I think that's why there are those of us who are you know, starting to make this argument that we need to shift the paradigm, if you will. I know it's kind of a cliche now, but that we do need to sort of shift from this sort of p-value paradigm to more of a Bayesian analysis paradigm. This, you know, specifically has come up for us, for for physicians who are interested in this, because of the whole evidence-based medicine approach. Because evidence-based medicine is premised largely on the p-value, and in fact, it almost deliberately starts with a neutral playing field, as if there's no prior pro- probability or prior plausibility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, that, so what we, we call the Bayesian approach to medical questions science-based medicine because it considers prior probability right. in right. a Bayesian right. way. So is this, is this a discussion that's also taking place in the cognitive psychology uh, area? Well, um, it's really the case that people uh, have been using Bayesian statistics quite a lot in, uh, in cognitive psychology, but usually they, they take advantage of the Bayesian paradigm to argue that people are somehow doing some things in a rational way, uh, visual perception, reasoning, that kind of stuff. You can, you can make models from, based on Bayesian principles and show that this works, but to actually do the statistics in a Bayesian way, there's not too many people who, who are doing that right now. And there's more and more because it's really catching on, but the editorial policies are still so fixated on reporting a p-value that it's, it makes it difficult to, yeah. uh, to, to change things. Uh, and let me ask you another question. How, how would you describe this? So how do you quantify the prior probability of each hypothesis? That, that, would, that seems to me to be a problematic area. Well, that is a very problematic area. Because uh, obviously my prior probability, for instance, for the existence of ESP will be quite different from, let's say, Daryl Bem's uh, prior probability. So this is why what we usually focus on in Bayesian statistics when we compare two hypotheses using a Bayesian hypothesis test is not the prior probabilities, but Mm -hmm. the change in prior probabilities that are brought about by the data. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of avoids the whole problem of having to specify uh, this prior probability exactly. So ob- obviously, it's still important, particularly if you if you look at a hypothesis that's like wildly implausible, right? You know that that this factor is there, and you should probably take it into account. But you know, you're not uh, forcing yourself to uh, to be very specific there. Right, but you can make a statement about the change in probability based on the new data, regardless of what you think the prior probability is or how you would quantify it. Exactly. Right. Let's let's turn now to to Daryl Bem's research. He published a series of was it was it nine studies? Yes, nine. nine. Yeah, that using what, uh, from my understanding, are fairly standard psychological models, but reversing the arrow of cause and effect. Can you describe some of the yes. research that he did? Yes. Well, for his, his, I guess his most uh, famous experiment that got a lot of uh, attention, 
I mean, a lot of attention, right? I mean, it was featured in the New York Times, Science, the Colbert Report. Stephen Colbert called it extrasensory pornception. And this was because in his first experiment, he had subjects look at a computer screen and there were two curtains and behind one of them was a picture and behind the other one was nothing. And you had to predict, as it were, where the picture would appear. And Bem argued that uh, for erotic pictures, but not for other kinds of pictures, you uh, you were better than chance. So that was one, but that was like a, a standard paradigm that has been used in ESP research a lot. But the psychological paradigms that he used are based on stuff like uh, reverse priming. So usually when you, uh, for instance, uh, uh, have to decide whether a letter string is a word or not a word, then it helps if you see this word beforehand, right? So if you see the word uh, doctor, and then a few seconds later you get the word doctor and you have to decide whether it's a word or not, you're much faster after you've seen it before. Now what Daryl Bem does, he presents this first word, which is called the prime. So that's something that you don't have to respond to. It's just there to prime you. But he presents this prime after the stimulus that people have to respond to. And the idea is that people would be faster for stimuli that would later be primed. He concluded from, from his research that, uh, he, that he actually produced evidence of this future sense or precognition. But what do you think about that? Yeah, so, I, well, there, there's, I should say, maybe if this would have been your average topic, right, Mm-hmm. then a lot of people would have felt probably that, yeah, sure. But, uh, but no, I, I do think that you can, you can uh, doubt this. So one of the issues we raised is uh, that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So if you want to convince people of uh, something that ESP exists, then you have to work quite hard. But that's not really the, 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 the thing that, that we had most trouble with. It's troublesome that this wasn't taken into account. But, you know, on the other hand, Bem could say, like, look, I did nine studies over a thousand participants. So it's certainly worth to look a little bit more carefully at what was done. And one of the things we noted when we first read the paper was that a lot of exploration seemed to be happening in these experiments. And that's very important because what you really want in this particular field is that somebody designs an experiment, has clear hypotheses beforehand, and then collects the data and only tests those hypotheses that he was interested in. Mm-hmm. If you don't do this, if you go on like a fishing expedition and you don't tell people about it, then, well, your statistics are really uh, uh, invalid and they overestimate the evidence that you found. Yeah, so th- this is always my worry with papers like this, is how much, as you say, fishing expedition occurred that's not ending up in the final report. Like, for example, did he test just erotic pictures, or did he test other kinds of pictures, like violent pictures and whatever, and then only is showing us the data for the one that happened to be positive. And we need to point out that this, these effects were so slight that it's it's easy to imagine that just this, you know, a very tiny error in methodology, like multiple analysis, is is more than enough to explain these really minuscule statistical effects that he's presenting. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And so it's uh, it's interesting that sort of after we discovered this and we talked about it amongst ourselves, like, hey, what is going on here? You know, he seems to test for, for instance, effects of gender that are later than, uh, you know, uh, uh, later he says like, uh, well, uh, gender really doesn't have any influence on Psy whatsoever. Previous uh, work has uh, pointed this out. And then you think like, yeah, but there's this test in there. So, mm-hmm. so what else did he test? And, you know, if you test a lot of different things, then something is bound to come up, right? Yeah. And so to, to indicate the, the way in which the, the spirit in which these experiment, experiments could well have been done, I would like to uh, mention a quotation by Bem from one of his famous papers, because this is not just like anybody, right? I mean, Bem is a famous social psychologist with uh, several groundbreaking theories to his name. And he has also written a uh, famous uh, a book chapter on how graduate students should do research. Uh, in, in this book chapter, he says uh, that scientists should at least become intimately familiar with the record of the behavior of their subjects, the data. Examine the data from every angle. Analyze the sexes separately. Make up new composite indexes. If a datum suggests a new hypothesis... Try to find further evidence for it elsewhere in the data. If you see dim traces of interesting patterns, try to reorganize the data to bring them into bolder relief. If there are participants you don't like, or trials, observers, or interviewers who gave you anomalous results, place them aside temporarily and see if any coherent patterns emerge. Go on a fishing expedition for something, anything interesting. Now, if this is the attitude with which you do your research, it's fine if you tell people, like, look, this is what I was doing. It's all a fishing expedition. But you have to be honest about this, and you have to follow this up with a purely confirmatory experiment. Now, and particularly in an area as con- as difficult as, as uh, Psy. It's funny. As you were reading that, I was thinking, wow, that's a good list of things not to do. Yeah, absolutely. And he's advocating, I completely agree. He's advocating yeah, yeah, doing yeah. those things. And you're right <laughs> in that – I mean I think that that's really weak methodology. But at, at the best, you could say that this is a, a method for exploratory research where you're just trying to maximize your sensitivity to even the slightest signal. But then you can't draw any conclusions from that. All you could do then is set up the confirmatory research later – and that's where a lot of people run into problems too because they will sometimes contaminate the confirmatory research with their original data points, yeah, uh, which, yeah. which of course is, doesn't work. That's not confirmatory then. You're contaminating it with your fishing expedition. So the, the, these, these plague the, the parapsychology research and it's, it's, it's a, not surprising, I guess, to hear somebody like, like Bem who's doing this kind of research essentially laying out the, all the things that we accuse them of doing. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And it's a, it, it's it's exactly uh, like you say. It's a nice way to uh, to uh, you know tell people to explore their data, but but you really do need to do confirmatory uh, work at some point. Right. Right. I mean that that kind of exploratory data needs to be treated like preliminary research. We- yeah. Yeah. I, I completely agree. And there's actually uh, several people I talk to 
uh, found it hard to distinguish between the, uh, the exploration and confirmation because saying, yeah, but, you know, okay, I was looking and maybe I shouldn't have looked at all these different things, but okay, I did look, but now it's really there, right? We can see it, it's there. But, you know, that it's, it's really fooling yourself when you, uh, w- when you do things this way. Yeah, absolutely. It's, like it's It almost becomes anecdotal because you're pulling out something you happen to notice out of a large body of data rather than, as you say, the statistics only works when you have one very specific hypothesis that you're then testing that and only that. And and if you do any kind of uh, exploration, you have to do you have to adjust your statistics for multiple comparisons, and th- that's again another one of those red flags, th- those things that rarely happens. But this yep. is this has all been, I think, a good teaching moment, and I also think that this is an opportunity to make the very point you made in your editorial. Whereas what this shows is not that there's psi, but that there's a problem with the research. That the, yep. the methods yeah. we need to go back and rethink our methods, and this brings us full circle back to the Bayesian approach. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, because this was another thing that we uh, we then did because we also we also uh, knew that p values tend to overstate the evidence against the null hypothesis. So, um, and this tendency to sort of you know reject the null hypothesis too easily. That, no, that, that tendency is uh, uh, more strong when you have uh, a lot of observations. And Bem did have a lot of observations in the sense that most of his experiments had 100 subjects, some had 50, and some had 200. Now, that 200 subjects is quite a lot in experimental psychology. Uh, so we, we already anticipated that if we would do a Bayesian test on the data from Bem, that we might find some different results. And so, and we did. We uh, applied a Bayesian t-test to the data, and this is uh, what it showed: was that there was really nothing there. So, uh, the evidence was sometimes in favor of the null hypothesis. It was sometimes in favor of the alternative hypothesis, but never by much. So, really, what we found is, even though we suspected that some exploration had been going on in the data, it wasn't enough to really seriously tip the scales in favor of the alternative hypothesis, if you do a Bayesian analysis. Yeah. So it was really weak evidence, even though we had to essentially cheat to get it, is what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, EJ, I'm glad we fixed science. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we got that off. Not quite point. there yet, no. <laughs> so EJ, thank you so much for joining me. It really was a pleasure. Great. Thank you very much. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. You guys ready for this week? Yes, sir. There is a theme. theme I know how you love themes. This theme is advanced technology. Which of these advanced technologies is not real? Ready? Item number one. Chinese researchers have designed a working tractor beam, a laser beam that pulls rather than pushes. Item number two. Researchers have developed a new kind of optical fiber with a zinc selenide rather than glass core that has potentially 1,000 times the bandwidth of existing optical fibers. And item number three. Scientists have developed a working nanoscope, an optical nanoscale microscope that can image objects even beyond the limits of diffraction. 
Bob, go first. Oh, boy. Um, geez. Um, let's start with three here. A working nanoscope. It's an optical nanoscale microscope. I assume the microscope isn't nanoscale. The, what it can image is. It can image objects even beyond the limits of diffraction. Yeah, I have, uh, I, th- I think that's physically possible. It, it, it seems like you couldn't possibly break that limit, but, uh, I think there is, there's, it sounds reasonable that there's a way around that limit. I believe they use evanescent waves, but, uh, alright, number two, it's a new kind of optical fiber, zinc selenide rather than a glass core. Um, oh, wow, a thousand times the bandwidth of existing optical fibers. Um, that's, that would be darn impressive. I'm not sure. Interesting idea. And then the first one here, we've got um, a tractor beam, which uh, you hear tractor beam, you think, yeah, Star Trek, not, not going to happen. <laughs> Star Wars. Um, a laser beam that pulls rather than pushes. Could be working on some, some quirky thing that will allow it to do that, but I can't think of how it, how it could do that. I'm going to say that uh, a, th- a thousand times the bandwidth of existing optical fiber sounds a little high. Sounds. That's too fucking high. (laughs) 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 What? That's from used cars. Used cars. Oh my god. (laughs) Oh my god, Steve. How obscure. That's awesome. (laughs) So I will. I will say that the uh, the optical fiber. That's just. That's a little too good to be true. I'll say that's fiction. Okay, Rebecca. Where are we? What's happening? Uh, Science and fiction. Mammoths mammoths and jetpacks. Go. we're at what the did, science wait, and fiction segment of the show. Bob, what did you what did you pick? <laughs> I picked the what? optical fiber as fiction. I, yeah. Um, you can pick your friends. You can pick your friends' answers. I all of these. You know what I heard, Steve, when you were reading these off? Blah blah blah. Tractor beam. Blah blah blah. Fiber. Blah blah blah. Nano. Blah. <laughs> it's a good. That's, that's good. So which one of those? <laughs> which blah blah? Tractor beam, fiber, or nano is fiber? Fiction. Blah blah blah. Fiber. Fiber. Go- GWV. Fiber. <laughs> okay. Fiber. Friction. All right, Evan. GWV. Uh, Bob, you're screwing me up here because I thought, yeah, I was thinking that that one was science about the fiber. Uh, but now you have me thinking twice. Damn you. How dare you get me to think twice? Start with the Chinese. Chinese I tried, research- I tried to make you think three times, but go ahead. Chinese researchers have designed a working tractor beam. Now, they've designed it. They've not built it yet. So I think that's perhaps the key there. They've designed it. So on paper and computers, it probably all looks good. Uh, therefore, pulls rather than pushes, I think that one is science. Jumping back to the one, oh, the working nanoscope, an optical nanoscale microscope that can image objects even beyond the limits of diffraction. Sure, it can see all the way to the Planck length. Right, Bob? Yeah. <laughs> you wish. Or the Planck length. Uh, <laughs> I, I I thought that one was. Uh, so what's the big deal? How big is this plank anyway? <laughs> it's about a cubit. Boy, Bob, you've really got me in a pickle here. Because I was really going to say that the nanoscope was uh, fiction, but I don't always do that, Bob. But I, I think this week you I'll should. Do that. Yeah, I, I will <laughs> you do it. Make a habit. All right, of it. I'll You're show you. Better. <laughs> Reverse psychology doesn't work on me. All right, Bob, I'll agree with you. The fiber. I'll say that one's fiction. All right, Jay. I am going to say that, man, if they could make a tractor beam, that's really cool. I didn't know that lasers pushed. You know what I mean? 
like so you're basically saying that they found they were able to come up with some way of making a laser beam attract something to it as opposed to the photons in the laser beam actually having some type of pushing effect, which I didn't even know existed in the first place. Um, Jay, solar sails, dude. Solar sails. That's how solar sails work. Yeah, didn't you see that Star Trek movie with the guy at the parachute thing? The, That's right. You know what, Bob? You're right. Sail. Slight pressure, the photons. But I didn't know it was... I thought that that rode on solar wind and not the... Is, isn't the solar wind actually pushing material? Yeah, I mean... Yeah, the solar... The solar I guess... Um, all the above, I, would, I guess. Photons do it. I mean, I know that, but and, and I don't see why the components of solar wind, electrons and nuclei, can't do it as well. All right, you done? Yep. <laughs> Save me your life story, Bob. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? This is, my, this is my time slot. So anyway, okay, sure. I, I'm not really crazy dissing on the tractor beam. It's possible. Um, researchers have developed a new kind of optical fiber. Now, this one... Um, you know, I do agree with what Bob said. You know, a thousand times better than the bandwidth of of fiber optics at their peak. I'm assuming. I, I just don't know about that. I think that one seems iffy, just because fiber optics have been around for a long time, and uh, you know, I'm sure that they've been optimizing them over the years. But pretty much, the data is being transferred at the speed of light. So how can you make it even? increase the bandwidth. I don't know. I'm not thinking of a way through that one. And the last one, scientists have developed the working nanoscope microscope. As Perry would say, anything with nanotechnology in it, I believe, I absolutely think that anything on the nanoscale, like news like this, is believable because, you know, they miniaturize something and, you know, all of a sudden properties change and, you know, they can do crazy stuff. So I, I, I right out of the gate, believe that one. So it's between the tractor beam and GWB, I'm going to GWB, and I'm definitely going to say that I don't think that they've improved fiber optics. All right. So you're all in agreement this week. Let's start with number one. Chinese researchers have designed a working tractor beam, a laser beam that pulls rather than pushes. You guys all buy the tractor beam. I'll buy well, one. It's only a design. It's only a model. <laughs> it's only a model. And this one is science. Yay. Yes. That's pretty yeah. cool. Guys, all bought the tractor beam. Come on! If, 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 if I had gone first, I probably would have picked that one. But <laughs> uh, I thought I could get Bob. I mean, Bob has to yeah. go first sometime. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, if I, I I might have bought it, Steve, if I didn't read it. Uh, you <laughs> oh, you, Bob. Hey, man, how are you doing reading? Bob, learning is cheating. Bob, you're a a dumbass. So the Chinese have designed a working tractor beam. However, the rub is it only works on the (laughs) nanoscale. Yeah, right. It works on a very, very tiny scale. Who wants to tractor beam a nano something? (laughs) Yeah, right. You're not going to a little nano Millennium Falcon. Yeah, exactly. With the nano Death Star. You won't be pulling in Millennium Falcon anytime soon. But this... May, I don't know, this may have applications in quantum computers or other similar devices. So, yeah. Let's go on to <laughs> number two. Let's get off that science fiction. Are you sure you on. don't want to just go to number three, Steve? No, we can take them in order. Researchers have developed a new kind of optical fiber with a zinc selenide rather than glass core that has potentially 1,000 times the bandwidth of existing optical fibers. You guys Fiber. all think this one is the fiction, and this one is fiction. Huh. Yeah, yeah fiction. baby. We sweeped you. Fiction. We sweeped you, huh? <laughs> yeah, you wimps. Go GWB. I believe in fiction. <laughs> <laughs> so there was uh, 
a, a you know development of a new fiber optic cable with a zinc selenide core. Yeah. Ten uh, times. No, they didn't say anything about bandwidth. Just they, it could uh. accommodate uh, wider frequencies of uh, of light, including uh, infrared, which will give it more mm. applications. They talk about specific applications they could they could use it for. Uh, but not necessarily increased bandwidth. They didn't say anything about the bandwidth. But, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if scientists... I hope this one doesn't come back to bite you, though. Yeah, I know, it could. I wouldn't be surprised, but I couldn't find anything about about bandwidth. So they say that specifically they can use this to make infrared lasers. Or tractor beams. Right, or maybe tractor beams. Or basically, it it lets them manipulate the light to a greater degree. Yeah. Which uh, which is one of the reasons why I think it, it will end up increasing the bandwidth, but I guess we'll see. Yeah, but not a thousand times, though. That's too much. Probably, uh, yeah. Which takes us to item number three. Scientists have developed a working nanoscope, an optical nanoscale microscope, that can image objects even beyond the limits of diffraction, and that one is also science. Yeah, that is really cool. You, you read that one too, did you, Bob? I read every goddamn one. And <laughs> wow. Which is, but, you know, but it's weird because I was still nervous because um, – I read every one, and every one was like, yeah, that's what I read. I was like, oh, crap. You didn't, there's, some, yeah, there's, there's some subtle little difference there that he threw in there. And the only thing I wasn't 100% sure on was the thousand times thing with the bandwidth. So I'm like, it's, that's, that's got to be it. And I was, but I was nervous. Even though I read okay. every story, I was nervous. Like, shit. So this one, yes, but yeah, Bob, you, you were right. It is about evanescent waves. Uh, they use glass beads to get beyond the diffractional limit, and they actually were able to make a – microscope or a nanoscope that could look at things at 50 nanometers. So that Jay uses glass beads. You could actually use this to visualize things like a virus. You a can virus see is- a virus with a, uh, an optical microscope, which is totally cool. Not just see a, vi- a virus, you could see the interior of a virus, which we really mm-hmm. can't see any other way. And the thing that surprised me about this was that they, they're, they're talking about being able to go down to almost they can't know they don't know what the limit is they think they can just keep going and going and i mean plank length you know is, yeah, is plank silly length is the limit. but i mean they're talking about um you know going even much further than much further than a virus right. which is really surprising um and uh i'm just fascinated by what we could what we could do with this well guys it might be a silly question but of course that's going to help us figure out more about how those things work and how to counteract Bacteria and viruses, oh, sure. right? Absolutely. Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. Jay, just looking at a living cell in action, you know, getting a, like a video of a living, of a living cell, um, you know, there's no staining involved. You don't have to kill it. You know, that's, it's incredible. I, this is going to have a pretty bright future, I think. I just hope it's not used for evil purposes. <laughs> if only we use this tool for good instead of evil. Well, <laughs> unless it's interesting evil. <laughs> yeah. Just how evil are we talking here? <laughs> Well, congratulations, everyone. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, everyone. Good job, um, guys. Nice. Um, I worked particularly hard on this one this week. So <laughs> you should have picked me last, Steve. <laughs> I can't make you go last every week. I thought maybe you hadn't read these. I know. All right. Well, you know Jay, know Jay, Jay, do you have a quote for so us this week? Smug. <laughs> <You are> smug. <laughs> well, you know, Bob, no, I'm, I'm not doing great this year, so I'm not. I'm not trying to be smug. I happen to have overachieved my segment this week as well. Mm-hmm. I have okay. two quotes. Okay. One of them is a poem. Okay. E.E. E. Cummings? Uh, <laughs> no, T.S. Eliot. I and read this one, T.S. This Eliot. one was, was sent in by Alex Garner, and T.S. Eliot wrote in 
the uh, I guess this is a book called Four Quartets. Didn't read it. Four of them, huh? Yep. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. T.S. Eliot! That was beautiful. And Jay, what does T.S. stand for? Uh, Terribly too sexy. Too sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Tough shit. <laughs> Tough shit. <laughs> 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 Next quote. <laughs> Bunch of Philistines. <laughs> oh, poor T.S. Okay, this is a quote sent in by a listener named Pansy McFancer. Uh, this is a quote sent in by Neil Shirley from Greensville, South Carolina. And What'd you call him? Neil Shirley. Don't call him Shirley. Shirley, he sent in this quote. God, give me the wisdom to see the truth, however contrary to my established beliefs. And that is a quote written by Robert Quillen. Hooray. Robert Quillen. <laughs> well, thank you, Jay. I have an announcement. Thanks. Ooh, yes. okay. We have several announcements, actually. All right, really quickly. Um, mm-hmm. Just because I've mentioned it during live shows in the past, so I thought some of our audience might be interested in the fact that uh, we finally launched... Mad Art Lab, the sister site to Skeptic that deals with the intersection of science and art and skepticism. And it's at madartlab.com. Mad. Cool. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Yeah, a few more things as well. Uh, all of our blogs, Neurologica, as well as Science-Based Medicine and the Rogues Gallery, are all now available on Kindle. I guess Skeptic has been available on Kindle for a while, right? That's true, yeah. Oh, yeah. So if you have a Kindle... We're ahead of the curve. Yes, you are. Way. <laughs> if you Way. have a You're Kindle already... and you want to listen to those... Don't you read your off. blogs on your Kindle, you can now get them. I guess you just you could search for it in the market or on Amazon. Uh, and keep in mind that we have Nexus 2011 coming up, April 9th and 10th, a full weekend event. You could buy tickets for either uh, just Saturday or just Sunday or for the whole weekend. Uh, the SGU will be doing a live show there, and we have lots of many other excellent speakers. Additional speakers that have recently been announced include Jacob Appel, Susan Jacoby, Brian Dunning, Kendrick Fraser, Elder Shafir, Sheena Iyengar, and Sadie Crabtree. So uh, get your tickets. Go to nexuscon.org. And remember that we have uncut episodes available for download Go to the SGU, the skepticsguide.org website, look under the store, and you will see uh, the SGU Uncut. We have f- the first five episodes bundled and then a sixth episode recently available. Check them out. There's a lot of good content there. There'll be more coming your way as well. To clarify, Steve, those aren't SGU es- episodes. Those are uncut episodes of yes. interviews and things that aren't on the regular show. Yes. That's correct. Thank you. All right. Thanks for joining me again this week, everyone. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Steve. So long, And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. 
You can also check out our other podcast, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zune, or your portal of choice. Theorem is performed by Kineto and used with permission. <laughs>